0: Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lehrhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. We are honored tonight to have with us a legendary actor and Australian native son, amongst many things, starred in a personal favorite of mine, the sixth James Bond movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Mr. George Lazenby. Welcome, George. Welcome to you guys. How
1: are you doing tonight? Well, I was on the phone to my
2: daughter hearing uh, things that were up and down. So now I'm with you guys, so let's see what happens.
0: How old are your children now?
1: Well, which ones? Well, you have four, right?
2: <laughs> I've got 60-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 40-year-olds, uh, 20-year-olds, 29-year-olds, and the they're all year olds old. <laughs> Two 28-year-olds and I'm trying to stop.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, we're all about film history and I, I always ask this question until the listeners get tired of it, but we'll we'll keep asking it. When you were a little boy, did your parents take you to the movies much? Did you go to the movies much?
2: Well, that I can't remember. When I was a I was in hospital at eighteen months, having one and a half. Well, first of all, I they didn't know what was wrong with me. They operated on my ba- uh, uh, on, on my yeah you know, whatever for a year and a half, and then this doctor came out from England, was in the sec- during the Second World War, and he said, "Oh, we had a kid that was doing that. He was peeing backwards into his kidneys." and then they looked at my kidneys and they
1: said oh my god and they took one and a half out and after they did that i was let
2: loose if my mother was told i wouldn't live to be a man on half a kidney and here i am at
0: 83 ready to uh do whatever. <laughs> are you telling me that you have lived all your life with a half of a kidney? That's right. Well, you
1: are a medical wonder. Well, that's, I didn't
2: think about it because all I heard when I was about eight years old, some kid came to school and my mother had told his mother, and he'd overheard her say, George is going to die at 12 or 13. He won't live as a man and half a kidney. And this kid at school used to always come up to me and say, You're the guy that's going to die. Ha, ha, ha. And I would kiss uh, him off and tell him to go F himself. And then next thing I know, uh, I passed 12 but I didn't take a lot of notice of school because I half believed him. I thought, well, if I'm gonna die, I might as well have a good time. And that's how I
1: developed the attitude where if I want something, go get it.
0: It's interesting. I, I'm re- I re- recall the actor-singer Bobby Darren. And Bobby Darren, you you remember Bobby Darren. Uh, cool. He was diagnosed early on in his life with heart issues. And I think he was also told kind of the same thing you were told by these little boys that you that he was not going to last. And uh, it affected, I think, his I think it made perhaps made him even more ambitious to get the job done than he would have been normally. So it would probably, gave you kind of a, you know, a no, no suffer, no fools.
2: Well, I had, um, I remember when I went back to my hometown, Queen in Australia, and they were giving me a plaque in the footpath, the mayor. And the mayor snuck into my ear and said, you know, we're looking for your high school results. You're the only guy that never got a high school for doing it. And you've done more than anybody in this town. So we won't say anything about that.
0: Now, uh, here's a question. Uh, According to your CV, you had military service. Yes, I had to. But with with a half kidney, I would think you would be deferred. I tried. (laughs) I was uh,
2: in the cadets from about 12 years old till 18. Then 18, we had to go into national service for three months in Australia. And I was in that. I was trained as a sniper because I used to go hunting with my dad since I was five years old. And he made me walk in front of him in case I shot him in the butt. But <laughs> I uh I could hit anything by the time I was eight years old. I was
1: um well, I won the Dart Championship, everything uh that had anything to do with accuracy.
0: So uh how long were you in the service? Just just four months? Three months.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then uh,
2: I was in London, and my mother called me when I was over there chasing a girl that I'd fallen in love with in Australia. That's why I went to London. And uh, he uh, said, George, the military here looking for you. And I said, what for? They wanted to take you to Vietnam. I said, "You tell them where I was." Said, "No." Well, don't. (laughs) And I was waiting for him to come get me in London, but they never did. And next thing I know, uh, I missed out in Vietnam.
0: Well, that probably turned out to be another good thing. So tell us about this girl you chased all the way to London. Did you? Did you? Did it prove to be a good journey?
1: Well, it was like this. He was the captain of the
2: Australian cricket team's daughter, who was very prominent in Australia. And the first date I had with her, I went to pick her up, and the captain of the Australian cricket team was sitting on the couch in the living room with the prime minister. Bob Menzies. So I uh, watched her walking across the room with a hand over her eyes because she was ashamed that I didn't realize that that was the prime minister or her father was the captain of the Cricket team. And next thing we fell in love in the nicest way. I mean, we were really in love. And uh, after about, I don't know, a couple of months, Dad decided that she should go to England. So uh shipped her off to England, and she told me that Dad said that she was just going to be there for six weeks and she'd come back. Well, the letters were five a day, you know, blah, blah, blah. The next thing, there were three a day, then two a day, then one a day. And then there were no letters. So I kicked myself off. I gave up a lot. I had a band. I was, uh, I had the biggest band in Canberra. What kind, of,
1: what kind of band? Rock and roll. Oh, and were then you, were you singing? No, I was
2: promoting it more than anything i went up to uh another band that was the biggest band in canberra at the canberra hotel and i asked them could i be in it And they said what do you play i said nothing what do you need they looked at each other and said this is a nutcase and so they all wanted musicians right so uh as i was walking out i heard them say bad he doesn't play electric bass and they just come out so i got my neighbor who was an electrician to make me a bass amp and then i went to the uh music store and they taught me how to play bass on a guitar because electric basses weren't around and uh i learned how to play bass and I went back and I said, I'm here to play in your band now. And the guy, his name was Ron Senke, who's head of the band, and he said, "Uh, Well, we don't need anybody. And then he saw my bass amp in the back of my pickup. And he said, Jesus, I'd like to try that amp. They'd never seen anything so big. had 15 inch bass speakers and was made out of eight plywood and so he played and he said geez I gotta have this amp and uh, so they fried me out and bass isn't hard to do for a rock and roll learner and I started doing the bass for him and next thing I know a girl asked me to get this guy to sing this song that she liked out of the audience and I asked him to do it I don't sing that song but if you want to do it, you do it so I went up to sing it and I was terrible and people <laughs> were looking at me going who the hell is that the next thing I know uh I walked off the band and left it and then I started my own
1: what did you, what did you call your band? The Corvette And so, next thing I know,
2: I was bringing these groups up from Sydney and making good money. And that's how I met my girlfriend. Already had one who was on the door collecting the money. But this other one was fascinated me more. And uh, he started going out and going to Sydney. We even went to see Frank Sinatra and went to the same restaurant he went to. That's how much money I was making. And uh, doing this, uh, having this band. And then uh, next thing I know, the dad saw she was interested in me and he shipped her off to England on some bloody deal, I don't know. But I was getting five letters a day and then four and then three. And eventually they fizzled out. So I gave up the band. I gave up my car selling job. Like I was a used car sales manager then by that time. I gave that up and went to, and then none of them believe I was leaving. And I went down to the uh, docks and I got the next boat to England, which took six
1: weeks. And uh
2: we went around Adelaide Perth
1: and up to you
2: know, Arabia and whatnot. And when I got there, couldn't find her. She'd moved. And so I was at the Overseas Visitor Club about two or three months later into Earl's Court in London. And this guy came, he said, I just saw Belinda down the street. Where? I went down there and she was with a bunch of cricketers because dad was the cricket camp in England. And obviously, you know, they connected. And I went in there and I said, I want to talk to you outside. And she said, whatever you got to say to me, you can say to me here. She's obviously with somebody else. And I said, no, I want to talk to you outside. And this guy poked his head in. You heard what she said, and my fist automatically came up and banged him on the chin. Ooh. And he went down, and uh, I lifted her up and carried her outside, put her in the car. It was right hand drive. And uh, next thing I know, all these crickets are coming out of the pub, and uh, she jumps out of the car, and I thought, oh, damn. Going to get killed, so I took off. And then uh, I got a letter from her saying, I could see it platonically. My boyfriend's doing these exams. I didn't know what platonic meant, and neither did anybody I worked with. <laughs> but, uh, I, think, uh, I went around all the salesmen and everybody at this dealership, and they said, I don't know what all that means. So we went uh off to uh oh she came and said I'll see you platonically and uh we uh I said whatever, you know. We went to
0: Brisbane which was the furthest place I could find from England, from London. Wait, wait, you're talking about from Brisbane, A- Brisbane, Australia? No, in uh England. Oh Brisbane, England, Brisbane. okay.
2: Yeah, it was on the other side of uh, England. Next thing I know, I thought, well, I'll nail her ass tonight. And I had a key to her room. So I booked her in, and they had these little shelves with two keys in them. And I took the other one. (laughs) Every time I wanted to go there, for some reason or other, I had diarrhea. I had to come back to my room, so nothing happened. Next morning, we're down having
1: breakfast. He says to me, I can't believe you didn't come into my room last night. And I said, no,
2: they can hide it myself. But anyway, he ended up heading back, and I said, screw it. I've come all the way from Australia, my old girlfriend, and I was driving the the uh the, the train in, the uh, Jaguar. And I'd taken the Mercedes over there. I was working on
1: Mercedes Benz. That's another story. But anyway, I got uh I got uh
2: halfway back to London, I thought, What the hell are you doing? I went under the freeway, grabbed all of her, and made love to her. She didn't resist. And But she cried the whole time.
1: And then uh, she was up against the window, and I said, well, at least I did it once. Next thing, she came at me. I thought she was going to hit me. And she said, I love
2: you. <laughs> And then uh, I said, Well move in with me, and she did.
1: And we moved
2: in together in London.
0: Now and was this was Saturday this night, was this when you started um, to, when you I know that you started to do you had sold cars in Australia, so when you came to London and you needed to make a living, right. you started to sell cars again, right? Right. I was so working
2: on the
1: has been. This guy, Errol Forbes is his name. He lives in Perth. And uh, he said,
2: George, I'm leaving my job on Monday. Why don't you go in and ask for it? And I thought, this guy doesn't like me, but why is he offering me this? So I went into the Mercedes-Benz and Park Lane, which is the best street in London for car sales and the Mercedes-Benz dealer. And I asked the boss guy there, I said, I want, uh, I in. Farrell Forbes' job. Oh, did you? Wait in the room there. Next thing, five cops came in. Errol had sold off a bunch of cars and set me up as the bad guy. And the police are all around me and they're ringing us straight here and checking on me and blah, blah, blah. Finally,
1: they said, he's cool, he's clean. So he gave me the job.
2: And I'm living in another world. You know, I was 80s compared to the place I was working at in Finchley. This little car dealer,
0: 2nd ain't car dealer.
2: And so, uh, I this, was is, meeting this different
0: this, people. This is this is London in the mid 60s, so this is a real swinging scene. Uh, kind of the mod, the whole uh mini skirts and uh pop music. It must have been like a oh, playground yeah. for you. Couldn't believe it. So, what, what I uh, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Oh, I.
2: I met guys, you know, selling uh, cars who were big time because they bought Mercedes. I remember this guy came in and he said, I want to take pictures of you. And I said, "Uh, what do you mean? I want to take photographs of you. So it was obviously photographic. And they were just changing the models over from pretty boys to, you know, voucher looking guys. And his name was Chad Jenkins. And he said, so I sent my girlfriend along because I thought he was gay. And I was then going out with Belinda. And uh, she went there. Then he comes back in
1: And he says, no,
2: I want to take pictures of you. And I said, okay. So he took pictures of me and then sent them to a modeling agency. And I never stopped working. I was getting like, I don't know, 25 pounds a week at the car dealer. I was getting 300 pounds a week modeling. So I give up the, the car dealing. started modeling and then uh, went on from there
0: so this the story story that gets told a lot is that you were in your barbershop and Cubby Broccoli saw you in that barbershop the producer of the Bond movies is that true? that's true that was earlier
1: uh, before I got the Bond job
2: I got the Bond job, and someone, the barber, probably went back to the barber, and the barber said, that's the guy you said would make a good James Bond
1: after I'd gotten the job. That's weird, huh? And uh,
2: that's how that story came up.
0: Now you also you were you also were noticed I guess it became a little bit of a cult thing that you were on this uh commercial uh for Fry's chocolate bars where you carried oh, a giant big Fry
2: head. that big Fry came into town boom boom I couldn't work anymore in England because that commercial was so famous so we can't use the big fry man for this, that, or the other. So I had to go to Paris, and I started working in Paris. And uh, then I was, wor- I was working. First of all, I started off working in, I'd met this girl in uh, Marbella, same, She's right. German, and uh, Gundel. And then we went to uh, Germany. I was working in Germany. And then I fell out with her. And then then I went back to London. They said, go to Paris. And I went to Paris. And I couldn't stop working. It was unbelievable. And uh, because I looked kind of European as well as Australian. Next thing I know... uh, I did uh, a long time there. I was back in, what was I doing? I was in London uh, seeing a friend of mine. Oh, that's right. I owned this apartment, not owned it, rented it. And uh, he came in, his name was Rowan O'Reilly. And he started Radio Caroline, which launched the Beatles, the Stones, who, all those groups. And I didn't know. I wasn't following that stuff. But he is in this guy's apartment. He said, who are you? And
1: I told him, and uh, he said, uh, don't sign the Bond thing.
2: What do you mean? He said, Don't sign it. He said, I'll get you
0: bigger movies than they can get you.
2: So I listened to
0: him. Well, we're getting we're, we're getting we're getting ahead of ourselves because this is after you made your Bond movie. This is uh this was the bad advice he gave it. But let's go back to you finding out that they're auditioning new James Bonds after Sean Connery decided that he didn't want to make any more. So as the story goes, you went to Savile Row and ordered a suit that had been originally uh for Sean Connery, is that true?
2: That's true.
0: But wait a minute. I didn't do
2: that until after I'd met this guy. And this guy, no, it was before that guy. I went down to Savile Row and I asked for a suit and they said it will take six weeks to make it I said oh shit and then I was walking out the door and they said we've got one here that Connery didn't want we want to try that on and I got longer arms than Connery so they all I had to do was let down the sleeves a couple of inches that fitted me perfectly so, when I went for the interview the first time,
1: I walked in in Connery's suit and uh they didn't you know tell me they
2: were impressed or anything, but next thing I go out and then they want to put me on hold, so they gave me a a suite in Grosvenor House which is in Park Lane, is down from where the car dealership was. And I was in there, and a funny story was this guy, David Hemmings, from Hemdale Films, uh, knocks on the door. He's got this beautiful girl with him. And she comes into the room, and uh, I start making love to her. And we finished, and then I and David is sitting there, and he's stood still. And I said, uh, "Come on, it's your turn." And he said, "No, no, it's fine." And he walked out. I never thought, what the hell was that all about? It was Broccoli and Salzman checking out if I was gay or not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: George, when you first went in to see Broccoli, what was your impression of him and Saltzman? Well, I was, I was uh, you
2: know, as a car salesman, I didn't have impressions
1: in that sense. My sense was don't say anything that will kill the deal. And
2: it's the same with the car salesman, you know? And I walked in and the guys asked me, how many movies have you done? I said, I don't remember. They said, what do you mean you don't remember? Well, I did them in, uh, you know, Taiwan, Manchuria, or um, Hong Kong and places like that, where I thought just off the top of my head, that they wouldn't be able to check
1: and next thing I know uh, they uh, had checked on me
2: but meanwhile they'd asked Peter Hunt who was the director he was in Switzerland uh, checking on locations and he came back and they wanted him to meet me and I sat down with him, and Peter had his fist under his chin looking at me. He said, tell me what you've done. And I don't know what made me do it.
1: I said to him,
2: Peter, I've never spoken in front of a camera in my life. And Peter jumped up and started laughing, walking around the room. And I said, what's the matter? He said, they brought me back from Switzerland to see you. They think you're great for James
1: Bond. You never spoke in front of a camera.
2: I said, no, I haven't. I said, I've been in front of a lot, but I've never spoken. And uh, he said, stick to your story. Make you the next James Bond. So Peter and I go over to see Harry and Cubby. And we're walking up the stairs, and there at the top of the stairs, they looked at me and looked at Peter and said, Get him out of here, a clothes peg. I didn't know what a clothes peg meant, but it didn't sound good. And I would have gone up there and knocked them both out. So Peter said, Don't, no, 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 mistake. No. He said, I want to test him. Oh, you're not testing him at the studios. We'll be the laughing stock of the industry. Testing James Bond with someone who's
1: never spoken in front of a camera. He said, we'll test him at your
2: place, pointing at Harry. Harry went, what the hell? Peter was basically in charge of the deal because he
0: edited a lot of the other
2: films. Oh yeah, the movie. That.
0: The movie was his reward for editing the first five Bond movies. He got the director spurs, and this was his big shot. I'm sure he nearly yeah. had a heart attack when you told him that you had never spoken on film before. Uh, but yeah. I think he saw something in you, probably the same thing that Harry and Cubby saw, that there was something reminiscent of Sean, but you had your own swagger.
2: No, they. Harry and Cubby didn't see it. They wanted to kick me out, and and Peter talked them into letting me get tested at Harry's place because they wouldn't let me get tested. He said, "You," he wanted to test me at the studio. I said, "Would well, be the lopping stock of the industry testing a
0: clothes peg, a James Bond." Now, excuse me, excuse me, George, George, excuse me. You keep using the word clothes peg. What does that mean? It's a model, a guy that puts clothes
2: on it like a uh, peg, you know. oh, a fashion model.
0: It's a a derogatory term for a fashion model. Got it, got it. Exactly. And I
2: was going to go up there and pull them down the stairs and kick them out. But next thing, Peter says, don't, no, no, no. And then Harry says, okay, do it. So they got a crew. They got actresses. One was Australian. I can't remember her name. And they tested me and tested me swimming. Or they said, let's see you swim. And Harry's got a pool. I went in and didn't come up till the other end. No, we want to see you swim on top of the water. <laughs> <laughs> and next thing I know, I did that. And, and I did fight scenes. And then I did uh, making love scenes on the lawn. And uh, finally, they took me to the studio. And we we're doing a... Oh, it was a fight scene, again.
1: Louie, Louie Craig,
2: or something his name was, he was the first guy coming at me. I caught him right in the chin, and he went down and out. And uh, they said, no, you can't hit the stuntman. And
1: I said, I've never done a stunt fight before. So, they, uh, Harry come over and- pushed me up against the wall. He says, we're going with you.
2: Tell anybody and the deal's off.
1: Oh, uh, so who the hell have I got to tell? Next thing I know uh,
2: they put me up in a nice
1: tweet. And,
2: oh, that's right. They wanted me to get out of town. So I got out of town. I went back to Switzerland. And the funny part was I was in Paris with about five or six guys that I knew very well. Because I'd lived in Paris for a while. And they said to me, where the hell have you been? We've been looking everywhere for you. And I said, I was in London doing that. And one of the deals was, tell anybody and the deal's off." So. And they said, what were you doing in London? I said, I was up for James Bond. And they all said, did you get it? And I said, yeah. And they all laughed, they didn't believe me. So fortunately, <laughs> I went off to uh, the south of France then and called the girl, Belinda, who I'd gone to London for, to come to uh south of France and meet me in Cannes, And she didn't know what was going on. But Harry came on, her father, and said, what are you going to do with my daughter in the south of France? I said, nothing I haven't done before, Harry. <laughs> 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 the next thing I know, we, uh I was waiting for, oh, Harry and Cubby called me to get back to London. We're going to announce you. Oh, shit, I got to get back for that. And so I go to the airport and Belinda's coming in as I'm going out. That's the last time we were together, except for one time after that. But meanwhile, uh, I went there, and uh, they announced
1: me.
0: That was a big announcement. Did you call your folks in
1: Australia? I don't know. Can't remember. They didn't have a phone, for Christ's sake.
0: Oh, at, in Australia? Yeah. Oh, and that makes it difficult to call them. <laughs> yeah
2: but uh I they, I eventually told them but they didn't know what the hell it was
0: and now, uh, George George when when a lot of young actors get their big break they if they've been working for it for years they've been going to acting classes they've been auditioning it's like a the end of a great journey and you uh had no intention of becoming an actor you we're making good money selling cars in the ritziest part of London. What would, what did you make of all this? Did you think it was going to be a flash in the pan? Or did you seriously think that maybe you could do something with this acting business? You know,
2: I go moment to moment. I don't think of the future. And uh, I listened to Rona Riley. And not to do another Bond movie, that Sean Connery's gig. And uh, I left a million pounds laying on the table to do another one. Next thing I know, uh, I'm on my own because uh, every time I got in a movie, I got in eight movies. Now I got thrown off every one. The director had come up with a producer and say, sorry george we can't use you because we they say we won't release our movie cuz you're under contract to them which was a lie i was never under contract i'd signed a letter of intent we they went to a privy council to check it out and i would win because i'd never been an actor before and I hadn't signed an actor's contract, so I didn't know what it was, and I didn't sign it. <clears throat> and I would have either stuck to my guns, or the people who hired me in movies would have listened to me. I'd have been okay, but I couldn't get by. Next thing, I ran into this guy Peter Bogdanovich in uh, Rome. And he introduced me to a guy called Aldo Lado in uh, up north in Italy. And he was making a movie, but he couldn't give me a big part because he'd already cast them and he was making a movie already. But he gave me a part and I got 10 grand, which was a lot of money in those days. Sure. And I went down to uh, Malta and bought a boat because the English were getting kicked out of there. And uh, I bought this
0: catamaran. I never well, sailed
2: in my life.
0: Let me uh, let me let me interrupt here. you for a second because uh, when I interviewed Peter Hunt back in the 70s, he told me that he, he was worried that giving you too much instruction on Secret Service would be a bad thing because it would be too much for you to digest. He told me he left you alone a lot. He didn't give you a lot of instruction, and he thought that it would piss you off, and he thought that you being pissed off would give a better performance. Does that make any sense to you?
1: Well, put it this way, I hardly ever spoke to him.
0: Which leads me I to mean, believe I,
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: because he didn't he knew that I knew nothing about making movies. And uh he stayed out of my way because what I was doing was making him happy.
0: Well I and tell I, was, I tell I tell people, excuse me, I tell people of all the bonds. You always look comfortable in the role. There's very few times in the movie where you don't look like you own the clothes, own the role, own the character. You just seem very comfortable. A lot of actors can get very nervous and fidgety. Uh, you know, it's it's just hard to settle them down. You seem pretty comfortable from the get-go. What do you attribute to that comfort? Well, I was getting late every night.
2: <laughs> and then eventually, after about three or four weeks, I got pissed off being on the mountain. And they gave me a helicopter. So, well, the helicopter I used to go to work in, go so into town at night, and I'd take a girl with me. I had a good life in a way, but the acting part never bothered me. I didn't know there was anything
1: unusual or something that I couldn't do with acting.
0: I've been doing it all my life. Well, certainly you were probably very comfortable with the firearms since, like you said, you'd been going hunting with your dad since you were five. Well, yes.
1: The firearms were nothing, you know, and uh,
2: the fighting was nothing because I've been fighting all my life. And uh, the stuntman used to uh, try and tell me, don't hit me. And uh, it was like, uh, sometimes I'd skip a beat and hit him and that'd be laying on the floor.
0: Well, the key key to James Bond, at least the producers felt from the get-go, is that Bond's got to be good with his fists. He's got to be a guy who, when he walks into a bar, he could take anybody out. And I think that uh, you showed that on the beach in that first scene, when you're fighting all those guys who were terrorizing Tracy. And uh, between the cutting that Peter employed with his rapid fire cutting and you uh, fighting you're in the surf, and it was just it's such a thrilling opening. It got the movie off to a great start.
1: Well, you know, they didn't do their own stunts,
0: the other bonds.
1: Connery never did his own stunts.
0: Hello? Yeah, no, no, I, I heard you. I heard you. Uh but yeah, you,
2: they you... told me he never did his own stunts. And uh he uh learned that from acting. You don't have to do your own stunts, you know. He used to complain if
1: you had to walk down the stairs.
0: Do you um? But up in the up at Piz Gloria, when you're trying to break out of the uh, cable car house, uh, that's not you on those cables. Oh yes,
1: it is. It really? Yes, it is. I did everything because I didn't know you didn't have to. Because there there were stuntmen on location with you. I know, but Peter Hunt
2: wanted to use me wherever he could. Right. And uh,
1: because he could go in close. And uh, climbing down cables was nothing to me.
0: You you were blessed with having one of the great female co-stars of the entire series, if not the best co-star, and, of course, Diana Rigg, before she was, before she came to Bond, did you know who she was?
1: I uh, I'd heard of her, but I never met her.
0: You guys have terrific chemistry in that in that movie. I think that there's a lot of pressure on you because this is the this is the movie where James Bond falls in love and and eventually gets married. And I think that. Uh, uh, everything hinged on you and Tracy having great chemistry. I have to tell you that my favorite moment in this in the movie, one of my favorite moments is you've escaped from Piz Gloria, you make your way down to the little town, you're sitting on the ice rink, your head's down, you're feeling all the pressure, and and Tracy skates up to you and says, "What's the matter, James?" That is one great moment between the two of you.
1: Well, we got along. Put it that way.
0: It was it was pretty obvious from from uh, what you told me in past interviews that uh, you had a great relationship with her. Although there's a funny moment in the newspapers. I guess you guys were in the in the uh, commissary at Pinewood one day and. Uh Diana yelled out that she was having d- garlic in her luncheon and uh it was before one of your love scenes and the, the press played up that she was trying to psych you out, which I thought was kind of ridiculous.
2: Well, she did. Because I at the time told her I didn't like garlic. And uh and she was just playing, you know. She was uh she had a good sense of humor, and he was a lovely person. I got nothing against her. He was, uh, you couldn't have got a better person to work with. I mean, even since I've been working, i he just knew what she was doing.
0: Given that you were doing all these stunts, George, and not realizing that you didn't have to, did you ever I, I don't think you ever got hurt, did you? Uh
1: well, little bits and pieces,
2: but nothing big time. Got it. I uh So it was like uh men would always say to me, George let's just do it slowly first hit one guy once and knocked him out and uh it's like i didn't know how to miss but then they the stuntman
1: more than anybody else uh taught me how to be a stuntman sure what was um what uh, when did you see the movie for the first time? I was uh in London with a girl and they
2: said unless you shave your beard off don't come.
1: And I came anyway but they couldn't not let me in. <laughs>
0: Now, did you shave, did you grow a beard after uh, O'Reilly told you not to sign the contract, or was that before? No, it was
2: after. After I finished the movie, I grew a beard. <laughs> Half the reason was because everywhere I went, hey, you, aren't you James Bond? And I said, oh,
1: shit, this is drive me crazy. And so I threw uh, a beard, you know. What did you think of What did you think of the movie? I wasn't over impressed, but I was, you know, uh, thinking it's a good movie. It was good. They should have stuck Listen, with you.
0: I've talked to you
2: long enough. I'm going to get off the phone.
0: I, I'm just finishing up. I just have one more thing. I just, wanted, I just wanted to tell all the listeners that if you have not seen Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, you're, you're in store for a treat because George's performance is terrific. The movie is probably the best produced James Bond movie ever. A lot of that credit goes to Peter Hunt. And George, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You are a national treasure.
2: <laughs> Whatever that means.
0: Well, just someone who just brings back great memories for all of us every time we talk to you. And everyone, okay. uh, I, my name is Steve Rubin. I'm the host of Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies. We've been listening to George Lazenby tonight. Uh Our producer, as always, is Ben Shrewsbury. Thank you for listening. And George, thank you and be well, okay? All the best, mate.
1: Okay, take care.